0: I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to get to know you. I'm hoping for mercy in terms of learning all your names. I'm doing some of that and keep working with me on that. But uh, it's been good and encouraging to be here since Thursday. We've been talking about a section of scripture that perhaps is not as well known as some are. But we know that Babylon took Judah into captivity after Assyria had taken the northern kingdom into captivity and that God had been with them in the captivity and brought them back that 50,000 or so Israelites came back under the leadership of Joshua and Zerubbabel and turned back to the Lord. They built an altar and started offering sacrifices. They built the foundation of the temple. And then the work of building the temple, the house for God to dwell in, came to a screeching halt. And that was kind of disturbing. Uh, Because if they really wanted God to be with them, you would think they'd want to build him a house so he could live with them. And that's kind of the, the concept of that. If, if you don't, if they don't build the house, they're not all that concerned about God being with them. There was some difficulty. They got the foundation built. And after they did that, there were enemies that were trying to impede the work. And so that's a part of that, but God would be with them. God had given them the strength to leave Babylon. He'd be with them in building the, the house of God as well. What Haggai and Zechariah do is stir the people up after about 16 years to rebuild that temple again. And Haggai comes on like gangbusters. We talked about that Thursday night because he really identified the problem. He said, you guys say it's not time to rebuild the, the house of God still. It's just not time, we haven't had time. He said, but you've had time to build your own houses and panel them and fix them up nice, but you haven't had time for the house of God. And, and really, that steps on our toes <laughs> because how many times do we use excuses like that? I just don't have time. I just don't have the resources. I just don't have the ability. But we have the time for all the things we care about. We have the time for our sports and our leisure and our travel and our, our jobs and our school and, and all the things we pursue. Whatever it is we really care about, we find time for it. And when we can find time for all those things, but we don't find time to build the house of God, or to prioritize the Lord in his service, the problem is not time, the problem is us. And how many times have we found that true in our lives? Where we we make all these excuses, but the bottom line is, the Lord just doesn't mean that much to us. I use the illustration. Let's say that you agree that you're gonna build on to your house or apartment or whatever, a bedroom and a bathroom for your mother-in-law, and you lay the foundation for the bedroom and the bathroom, and then 15 years later, you still haven't done anything to build it. What do we know? You didn't really want your mother-in-law moving in with you. That's what we know. And when we don't prioritize the building of God, God's house in our lives, what we show is we really don't want God being that close to us. That's what we really show. So it's, it's, it was very powerful. And Haggai, within three weeks, they started rebuilding that temple again. And... Zachariah comes along, and he says a lot of things to try to encourage and inspire them. When we start doing the work of the Lord, God is with us, and he blesses us, and he helps us in doing that. And, and Zechariah really shows that and encourages in that. Zachariah is not one of the better-known prophets. And uh, as you read it, you can understand why. There's some challenges. When we looked yesterday, there's really three main sections of the book of Zechariah. The first six chapters is an introduction, eight visions, and a conclusion. That's the easiest part. Then chapter 7 and 8 is a question answer. Should we keep fasting to remind ourselves of Jerusalem's destruction now that we're rebuilding the temple and the city? And the answers God gives to that. Chapter 9 to 14 is the rest of it. I'm not even sure what to give as a title for this. It's more challenging. Let me suggest one principle. Almost all the prophets look forward a lot to the coming of Christ and the Messianic age, we say, the, the era of Jesus and the Messiah. There are many times that the prophets say something that has some sort of a shadow fulfillment in the foreground. and something that's going to happen in the next few years or the next few centuries. But they always, almost always, look forward primarily to the coming of Christ. It is sometimes difficult in a prophet like Zechariah to know to what extent there is some limited foreground fulfillment, but we will look mostly at the fulfillment in Jesus because I think that's by far the more important and more significant thing that Zechariah is saying. So look at Zechariah chapter 9 and think about what Zechariah was saying as he talks about God conquering all these cities. He talks about the cities up in the north in Syria, Hadrach and Damascus and Hamath in verses one and two, and God conquering those cities. He talks about Tyre and Sidon, that God, despite their being very wise, despite their defenses, their fortress, despite all their silver and gold, God casts her into the sea. It doesn't make a difference how strong man's uh, accomplishments are or how wise or how wealthy. God is in control. And we read even of a small community of Christians in Tyre in Acts chapter 21 that Paul visited. So we see that was fulfilled. We see God conquering the Philistines. Verse 5, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, Ashdod, cutting off the pride of the Philistines. Look at verse 7, I will remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things from between their teeth. I think he's talking about the idol sacrifices they were offering. And he'd remove them, if you remove them from between their teeth, I gather they were trying to hang on to them. God had to forcibly remove that. But he says in verse uh, 7, then they also will be a remnant for our God and be like a clan in Jude and Akron like a Jebusite. He's talking about the conversion of the Philistines. And when he talks about Ekron, one of the Philistine cities, would be like a Jebusite. We know historically and from the Bible that the Jebusites continued to occupy the city of Jerusalem for generations after the conquest until the time of David. And then David conquered Jerusalem and just they sort of absorbed the Jebusites into the Jewish nation. Uh, Arana, for example, in 2 Kings 24 was a Jebusite. Uh, And so he's saying the Philistines will be encompassed in the people of God. Interestingly, you've got towns like Azotus, Ashdod, and Gaza uh, mentioned in Acts chapter 8 in connection with the spread of the gospel throughout the world. So God was going to conquer all these nations. That's God's goal, is to conquer nation after nation, people after people, for the cause of of the Lord, conquering them and, and bringing them into Christ, into his kingdom. How does he do that? Look at verse 9. We know this passage, but this is so significant. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now think about the one who's coming. Your king is coming to you. You know this passage from the fulfillment in Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, literally speaking. But he says so much more about him than that. Your king is coming to you, he is just. We serve a king that is righteous and just and honorable. He is endowed with salvation. He is a saving king. He doesn't just have his salvation for himself. His salvation is a part of his character toward those who serve him. He's a saving king. He's humble. If you were as great as Jesus was, it would be difficult to be so humble. But he's humble enough that he rides into Jerusalem not on some elephant or stallion or steed. He rides in on a donkey. He shows his humility in that way. Donkeys had, at times, been ridden by royalty, but I think not so much in the era of Jesus. So this is a way of Jesus demonstrating his humility as he comes in. So the conquest of all these territories is by this king riding on a colt, endowed with salvation and wise and and bringing salvation to the lands. He cuts off the chariot from Ephraim in verse 10, the horse from Jerusalem, the bow of war, and he speaks peace to the nations. So his achievements are to conquer and unite and bring peace to the people under his rule. And his dominion will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. You know, one of the things that was commonly said about the territory of Israel, it was from the river to the river of Egypt. The river, of course, being the Euphrates. But Jesus' kingdom is from the river all the way to the end of the earth. You know, it's, it's universal. Jesus is going to reign. The great accomplishments that he sees happening in this chapter, happening because of the one sitting on the donkey, on the colt, bringing salvation, conquering the nations, and and being the king over all. Look at verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. There were uh, times in the Old Testament when people got put in pits. You remember any of those? Joseph Mm -hmm. put in a pit? Then rescued by his brother to make some money off of him, brothers to make some money off of him. Jeremiah, saved by the uh, first Ethiopian eunuch in the Bible, ebed Melech. But I think the pit he's talking about here is the pit of sin. Prisoners are freed by the blood of the covenant from the waterless pit we're in. You see the saving nature of Jesus as he, he blesses his people by delivering them from their pit. Return to the stronghold, verse 12, O prisoners who have, who have the hope, this very day I'm declaring that I will restore double to you. He's encouraging them to come back to the safety of his rule. And, and, and when we're with the Lord, we're in the stronghold, and he protects us. But he does more than that. Some of these passages are just unique. I don't know of another passage quite like this, but I want you to think about what it's saying. Look at verse 13. This is God speaking. For I will bend Judah as my bow, and I will fill the bow with Ephraim. Now, what do you fill a bow with? Arrows, right? So the bow is his people Judah, and the arrows are his people Ephraim. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and I will make you like a warrior's sword. So God's going to use his people as his bow and arrow, and as his sword to conquer. Now, some people think there may be a preliminary fulfillment of this in the intertestamental period when the Maccabees drove out Antiochus Epiphanes. Maybe so. But the primary application of this is in Jesus. How did Jesus use God's people? How does he use God's people as his bow and arrow? and as his sword. I think about Paul in Acts chapter 17, coming to the city of Athens right in the heart of Greece and speaking there on to the Areopagus about the unknown God and and teaching right there in the middle of pagan philosophy about the God of, of heaven and the one who made all things, the one who needs nothing, the one who will judge all things. God using his people as his weapons to conquer pagan strongholds and pagan philosophies. In verse 14, then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning, and the Lord will blow the trumpet and will march in the storm winds of the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them, and they will devour and trample on the sling stones. They will drink and be boisterous as with wine, and they will be filled like a sacrificial basin, drenched like the corners of the altar. Again. You see this emphasis on the conquest, God's people trampling over the missiles that are hurled at them, conquering. God, our God is a warrior. We don't think that about that picture as much as we need to. We think about the peaceful nature of the Lord, but he's also a conqueror. He's a conquering king, and his goal is to conquer the the forces of Satan conquer immorality, conquer false doctrine, conquer atheism and paganism and all kinds of things that are against him and his will. We need more of a victorious spirit. We need more of a sense of of conflict leading to victory. We are fighting against a very real enemy, and we have the Lord with us, using us in that battle. We need to be ready for the conflict. Think about ways in which you need to be ready to be the Lord's bow or arrow or sword. When we face temptation, Satan's trying to conquer us individually. And we fight back with the sword of the Lord. We fight back with the reliance on God and his will. To overcome temptation, to defeat Satan in our lives. Think about false doctrines. There are so many things Satan has inspired to try to pervert Christianity into something that's different from what Christ gave us. And we fight against that. We teach the truth. We combat error. And then you think about just spreading the gospel and advancing the kingdom. You think about the book of Acts. The book of Acts is such an exciting book. Because what did you start out with? Those 120 there on the upper rune on the day of Pentecost? And and the gospel just starts growing. You know, Jerusalem, 3,000 converted, 5,000 converted, Judea and Samaria as. Philip goes down to Samaria and and they go out to Cornelius, the first Gentile converted, and then people fleeing the the persecution with Stephen, going down to Antioch, preaching not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And then Paul taking the gospel and taking the gospel throughout Galatia, and then on over into Greece, into Europe, Macedonia and Achaia, back to Asia. And then finally, by the end of the book of Acts, Paul proclaiming the gospel in the Roman capital, unhindered. May have been a prisoner, but all that did is give him easy access to some captive uh, 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 guards that had to listen to him preach to him all the time. You know, the the progress of the gospel. So there's the sense that as we're in Christ, we are conquering. We have a sense of warfare, a sense of, of, of military uh conflict, and victory in Christ. And the Lord their God, in verse 16, will save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they are as the stones of a crown, where God's crown jewels sparkling in his hand. For what comeliness and beauty will be theirs. Grain will make the young men flourish, and the new wine the virgins. Abundant prosperity and blessing from God. We need to return to the stronghold, depend on the Lord, let him use us, in his battles, in the warfare that, that is contributing to the Lord's kingdom being advanced and people being saved by the blood of Jesus. Great passages, very figurative, very cryptic in some ways, but once you see it that way, I think it gives you a sense of inspiration to go out and be the Lord's people. Quit fooling around with our paneled houses and get busy with the house of the Lord and the work of the Lord. In, Acts chapter, in, in Zechariah chapter 10, ask rain from the Lord at the time of the spring rain, the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain, vegetation in the field to each man. You know, that's kind of a, a, a bold statement in the first century, in the, in the, in the centuries of, of Zechariah, because for the world of Zechariah's day, who was the one that gave the rain and the storm? That would be Baal, or Baal's uh, cognates in other other areas. They thought these idle gods were responsible for the rain. No, ask rain from the Lord. The Lord makes the storm clouds. It's not any idle god that does that. He says, for the teraphim, verse 2, speak iniquity, and the diviners see lying visions. They tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wander like sheep they are afflicted because there is no shepherd. All these lying, vain, empty promises, dreams, revelations that don't come from God, and the people are just lost. They're wandering like sheep because they're listening to all these teachers that don't know what they're talking about. They just talk from their own mind. They comfort in vain. There's no real value in what they say. We got the same problem they did in Zachariah's day. A whole bunch of people running around claiming to be telling the will of God They don't have anything to do with God. They tell what their own thinking is, and they brand it God. They say, well, you know, Spirit spoke to me. He led me. He told me this and all that. And so we've got to to fight against those false teachings. He says, my anger, verse 3, is kindled against the shepherds, and I will punish the male goats, for the Lord has visited his flock, the house of Judah. God will punish those false shepherds, those people misleading uh, his people. He'll punish the male goats. He's visited his flock, and look what he does for us. You think about us. We are not very impressive. You know, I mean, like Paul said in First Corinthians, most of us are not super successful people in this world. You know, that's that's generally the case. We're we're pretty simple folks. We've not made a great impact. Probably no most people outside of uh, your neighbors even know your name. You know, a hundred years from now, probably no historian will write about you. We're not anything special. But in the Lord, he makes us something. Amen. The end of verse 3, and I, God will visit his flock and will make them like his majestic horse in battle. Think about a sheep being transformed into a majestic horse in battle. God makes something out of us. He uses us. It's not us. It's not because of our ability or our competence or or our ingenuity, is what the Lord can do with humble people, humble disciples who are willing to submit to him. From them will come the cornerstone, from them the tent peg, from them the bow of battle, from them every ruler, all of them together, they will be as mighty men, treading down the enemy in the mire of the streets in battle, and they will fight, for the Lord will be with them, and the riders on horses will be put to shame. Think about what God does. From God transforming his sheep Come the cornerstone, stable leaders. Come the tent peg, people, the, the people that, that others can lean on. Comes the bow of battle, fearless leaders willing to fight for the Lord. From them, every ruler together. You think about what God's able to make of his people. If, if you had been Jesus, and you knew a little bit about people, would you have picked the 12 he picked? <laughs> would you have kept them? He picks some fishermen. Fishermen are OK, but you, know, you wouldn't necessarily pick them to be the leader of a worldwide enterprise to last for the next 2,000 years. He picks Matthew, a tax collector of all things. You know, tax collectors were pretty much synonymous with being thieves and cheaters and, and, and traitors. He picks Simon the Zealot, for crying out loud. The zealots were really pretty much terrorists. You know, he picks people like Judas, know what happened to him and Thomas who was always the skeptic what can you do with 12 like these well depends on who you are I don't think we could have done much with them but Jesus could he's able to make something out of them and it gives a lot more glory and honor to Jesus that he makes something out of somebody that doesn't have much potential than if you'd taken people who were really glorious and spectacular in a worldly sense. I mean, if David had been a tried and tested warrior who, who could bench press whoever ever how much and who had all kinds of shooting practice and one thing, the fact that David was this little shepherd boy that nobody even thought about, using a rock, killing a giant, what does that show you? Hey man, we need to take slingshot practice. No, it shows you God. It shows you that has nothing to do with David. He's just a willing servant of God, and God gives the the victory. And so what God's able to do with his people, the conquest, you think about, again, the book of Acts, starting with those 12. Isn't it amazing how they upset the world, as they said in uh, Acts chapter 17 in Thessalonica? That was their enemies who said they've overturned the world. Well, that might have been an exaggeration, but they made a big impact that you would never think those guys could have made because of God being with them. So God can make us a majestic horse in battle. He can make us the cornerstone, the tent peg, the bow of battle, the ruler, the mighty men, destroying the enemy. Now, one of the things you continue to see here in this book is this sense of battle and conflict. That's not comfortable for us. We do not like conflict. We do not like the idea there's a fight. We would like to say everyone's fine. Every belief is to be affirmed. Every worldview is fine for those who find it comfortable to them. We want to be embracing. We don't want to be be against anything. We want to be for everything. That's the culture, that's Satan trying to get us to lay down our weapons and trying to get us to quit fighting. You know, if you were gonna attack another country, if you could get them just to, to quit fighting, just let you come in, that'd be the easy way to do it. You know, that, 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 that'd work really well if you could somehow get that to happen. Well, Satan gets it to happen. So we've got to be filled with more of a sense of urgency in our mission that involves fighting against temptation and sin and false doctrine, and worldly philosophies, and fighting for the cause of Christ and the truth of the gospel. And and you feel that here. He says in verse 6, I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I've had compassion on them, and they will be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. He strengthens us. Even though we've been rejected by God, and we turn back to him, he can strengthen us and make something out of us. Make something out of these people who've been sent into exile. They've been sent to captivity because of their wickedness. But God brings them back and strengthens them and saves them. He says in verse 7, Ephraim will be like a mighty man, man, and their heart will be glad as if from wine. Indeed, their children will see it and be glad. Their heart will rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them to gather together, for I have redeemed them, and they will be as numerous as they were before. God whistles for them, and they come, so many of them outgrowing the territory. He says in verse 10, uh well, verse, verse 9, when I scatter them among the peoples, they will remember me in far countries, and they with their children will live and come back, and I will bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no room can be found for them. And, and you just imagine the, the huge number of people of God all through the world. You know, you can't contain them in, in a city, you can't contain them in a country, you can't contain them in a continent. There are people of God all over the planet. It's amazing what God has done, starting with those 12. It's so encouraging. And they will pass through the sea of distress, and he will strike the waters in the sea, so that all the depths of the Nile will dry up, and the pride of Assyria will be brought down, and the scepter of Egypt will depart. God removes the obstacles. He destroys the enemies. And I will strengthen them in the Lord, and in his name they will walk, declares the Lord. The great blessings God is bringing for his redeemed people He's, he's showing them that there's a glorious future in Christ for his people. What a, what a blessing. What a blessing it is to be the ones that he was talking about. You remember the passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, when it talks about the prophets in the Old Testament, wondering, who is this talking about and when is it talking about? I bet you anything they were hoping that they would find out it was for them in their generation. But they found out it was for us in the time of the Messiah. We're the ones that are blessed with the fulfillment of all these prophetic dreams and and hopes and revelations that that are so wonderful, so awesome. We don't value what we have in Christ. You know, if you can imagine being Isaiah, writing all those wonderful things in those last 27 chapters of Isaiah that he was looking forward to, that God was going to bless them with. And thinking about Isaiah saying, oh, I wish this would be me. Oh, I wish we could experience this. I wish we had these blessings. We have them. And we don't appreciate them like we ought to. Amen. You know, you see them here, and you're like, wow, this would be great. And then you're thinking, well, that's us. You know, we have these blessings. So look at chapter 11. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that a fire may feed on your cedars. Now, here's the problem. While God is promising blessings for his people, there are many of his people that have come back to Jerusalem that still are not faithful to God that need to be judged. God is both a, a God of blessing and a God of judgment. And so he balances this out. There's great blessings for his faithful people, but there's, there's these people who are not faithful. What's God going to do with them? He says, "Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen because the glorious trees have been destroyed. Whale, O Oaks of Bashan for the impenetrable forest has come down. All these places, have all these trees, he's picturing the fire coming and devastating them, the, the, them destroying all these trees, the trees all falling. There's a sound of the shepherd's wail for the glory is ruined. There's a sound of the young lion's roar for the pride of the Jordan is ruined. You see the idea of there's no jungle left, there's no trees left, there's no vegetation left. God's gonna come and bring his judgment upon the wicked part of his people. So there's blessing for the righteous, there's punishment for the wicked. Now, this is a fascinating passage starting in verse 4. And I think you'll see this. I want you to see this in this sense. You've got the the nation that's still not what it ought to be, wicked people prevailing, and God sending Zachariah and saying, Zachariah, see what you can do with them. See, you be a good shepherd to them. You try to lead them back to me. Let's see what happens. So verse 4, thus says the Lord my God, pasture the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slay them and go unpunished. And each of them who sells them says, blessed be the Lord for I become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. So the flock is not in good shape. They're doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them kill them. And then, and, and sell them off, and then said, Blessed be God who's made me rich. And they got rich off of uh, selling out the flocks and praising God for their ill gotten gain. God was, uh, God was certainly not in uh, favor of those bad shepherds. Verse 6, for I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord, but behold, I will cause the men to fall each into his, another's power and into the power of his king, and they will strike the land, and I will not deliver them from their power. God's basically going to cause the flock to self-destruct, but before he do, does that, this, this attempt to give, give Zechariah, let him be a shepherd to them, see if he can bring them around, see if he can get them shaped up to where God can bless them. Verse 7, so I pastured the flock doomed to slaughter hence the afflicted of the flock. I took for myself two staffs, one, the one called favor and the other called union, so I pastured the flock. So Nehemiah, or Zechariah, does, does what God says. And Zechariah is, is, is willing to take up the responsibility. He pastures the flock. He tries to be a good shepherd to him. He takes up his, his staffs to help them. He's going to make a, a real uh, you know, sincere effort to, to do what he can for this flock. Verse 8, then I annihilated the three shepherds in one month, for my soul was impatient with them, and their soul also was weary of me. I think he's uh, annihilating these three shepherds to show his zeal for caring for the flock. These are the shepherds that have been selling off the sheep and claiming that God made them rich from that. So he he wipes out three of these shepherds that are worthless, and he's trying to get things to where these sheep can thrive. But their soul was weary of him. So he says in verse 9, then I said, I will not pasture you. What is to die, let it die. What is to be annihilated, let it be annihilated. And let those who are left eat one another's flesh. And I took my staff favor and cut it in pieces to break my covenant, which I had made with all the people. So it was broken on that day, and thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me realized that it was from the word of the Lord. It was the word of the Lord. So Zechariah becomes disgusted. They're, not, they're tired of him. They don't want a good shepherd. Ever thought about this? Don't you think sometimes, if we could just get a good president, if we could just get a decent Congress, if we could just get some good politicians, you know what? Wouldn't help. The leaders we have in the country are a reflection of the people in the country. They're who we are. You ever thought about a church and think, man, if that church just had some decent elders? Man, they they just had some good ones. Well, what kind of elders does the church get? kind of reflect the nature of the people in the church. It's, It's usually not just a leadership issue. I'm not saying there's not a responsibility for leaders that God gives in his word. But I'm saying that it's not just the leadership that's the issue. It's the sheep that's the issue. Jesus, God, has been willing to be their shepherd all along. And he'd given them prophets that taught the truth and that tried to shepherd them. They didn't want to be well-shepherded. You know, it wasn't just the leadership was bad, it was the people that were bad. And so Zechariah becomes the shepherd. Well, they don't want that. They don't want a good shepherd. He says in verse 12, I said to them, if it's good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. Either pay me. You know, for what I've done, kind of like a severance package? Or not? So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages, the compensation due to a master if somebody accidentally killed their slave. You know, can you imagine working for some company? You work hard for a month or two, and it just doesn't work out. You say, I'm quitting. Pay me what you think I'm worth. Work there for a month or two, and they give you half 20 bucks. Don't give me the money rather than doing that. Is that what you think I was worth? That's what they're doing. Hey, you're worth as much as a slave gored to death by an ox. That's what they gave him. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price by which I was valued by them. So I the—I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Then I cut in pieces my second staff union to break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. What a price. Just throw it to the potter. I don't even want to see it. Now, surely by now you've realized that what Zechariah is doing here is just a foreshadowing of something much greater that God was going to do. Because you got the people of God continuing to not do well and continuing to defy Him. And so God sent His Son as a shepherd. What does Jesus say? I am the good shepherd. John chapter 10. Well, how did that work out? You know, he came as the good shepherd to His people Come unto me, all ye that were in a heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I wanted to gather you as a chicken gathers, a hen gathers her chicks under his wings, her wings, and all that. How did they deal with Jesus? Well, there was a few, the remnant that followed him, some of them inconsistently. But the Jewish leadership, the bulk of the nation, well, they finally decided to, to, to destroy him. And what did they pay for him? Thirty shekels of silver. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but I think it's annoying that Judas settled for such a cheap price. As if Jesus wasn't worth any more than that. You know, he could have sold him out. For, could have stood his ground and, and held out for more. It just shows you people. People just don't appreciate Jesus. They don't value him. They didn't then. People don't now. They like talk about Jesus, but when it comes to the true Jesus and what he really says and what he expects out of us, most people are willing to to sell him out for next to nothing. Now, you think about this passage. Now, this is not the only point I want to make, but this is an impressive point. Sometimes when you deal with Bible prophecies, one of the things the skeptic likes to do is to say, well... Yeah, it's a prophecy because he he wrote it after it happened and he just claimed it was a prophecy. That's a typical dodge. And sometimes it's hard to disprove it because we can't concretely prove when some of the books were written. If If they mean what they say, we know. But if you're a skeptic, you don't accept those things. We know all the Old Testament was written long before Jesus came. We've got the Greek translation of the Old Testament from 200 years before Jesus came. There, we've got documentary evidence. There's nobody, nobody who's really lucid and, and knows the evidence would, would argue otherwise. How did Zechariah write something so parallel to what happened to Jesus hundreds of years before Jesus came if God wasn't inspiring that? There's a lot of reason to believe in the Lord. Prophecy is just one of them. But it's one of them. And it's an amazing thing, and Isaiah uses that a lot to to testify about God, he knows the end from the beginning. He can tell you what's going to happen. He calls upon the idols in chapter 41 of Isaiah to, to, you tell me what's going to happen. Finally, he says, you tell me something, anything. You you can't can't even talk, you know. So this is an amazing passage in, in the evidence value of what it shows about Jesus. So he says in verse 15, the Lord said to me, take again for yourself the equipment of a foolish shepherd.'" For I'm going to, behold, I'm going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for the perishing, seek the scattered, heal the broken, or sustain the one standing, but will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hooves. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword will be on his arm and on his right eye. And his arm will be totally withered, and his right eye will be blind. So you see the, the foolish shepherd, that's what they deserve, that's what they get, that's what they want. Here's the shepherd who's the, the anti-shepherd. You know, he doesn't care for the perishing, he doesn't seek the scatter, he doesn't heal the broken, he doesn't sustain the one standing. He just, he just even gnaws off the hooves to try to get whatever little meat there is on the feet. He's just trying to exploit the sheep and not help them. And that, that's what God saw happening among his people. Shepherds exploiting his people. And God said the sword will be on the arm, against the arm that neglected to defend the flock, will destroy the eye that didn't watch over for the flock's safety and benefit. There's a neat thing you can do with these passages. There are a lot of shepherd passages among the prophets in the Old Testament. And mostly they talk about the bad shepherds that Israel had. Well, you know, elders are shepherds. What's an elder's job? The opposite of this. What an elder ought to do is to care for the perishing, seek the scattered, heal the broken, sustain the one standing, and bless the sheep. That's the role of the elder. You know, I think a lot of times churches have the idea that elders are the ones who need to run everything. We need some elders to tell us what to do and to run things. There is some oversight involved in the elder's work, I agree. But the primary role of an elder is to take care of the sheep especially the special needs sheep who have lots of problems. That's not a lot of fun, but it's what the Lord wants done. And if we care about him and his sheep, we'll do it as we have opportunity. So that's that's what he says up to this point. Not exactly a traditional sermon in this, but I wanted to try to get through the rest of Zechariah and just think about some of these things. I think really powerful applications. As we look at this section that I don't even know how to outline or how to describe it, but it talks a lot about Jesus. In the class, we'll try to go through most of 12 and 13 and kind of summarize 14. But I appreciate your, your attention. It's been good to, to study with you guys. You all pay excellent attention and uh, very encouraging. So I appreciate that. Amen. Amen.